This is exactly right. The 2020s are getting stressful. What if we go back in time to the 1920s? All those flapper dresses, champagne towers, and good old-fashioned whodunits. Now is your chance with June's Journey, the mobile mystery game that puts your detective skills to the test. This game has everything. You'll play as June Parker investigating the murder of her sister. You'll travel the world searching for clues and explore lavish estates and beautifully designed scenes from the Roaring Twenties. Each is filled with hidden objects that may lead you to the killer. There are twists, turns, and even catchy tunes. And if you play well enough, you might make it to the detective club. There you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Case Files is an award-winning podcast that presents unforgettable true crime stories. Presented by an anonymous host, Case File delves deep into the crimes, investigations, and trials of solved and cold cases from around the world. With more than 250 episodes, the podcast has covered infamous unsolved mysteries, notorious murders, and lesser-known cases that deserve more attention. Discover why everyone from Rolling Stone to Time Magazine is calling it a must-listen experience. Follow Case File wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson. I'm a journalist who's spent the last 25 years writing about true crime. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired cold case investigator who's worked some of America's most complicated cases and solved them. Each week, I present Paul with one of history's most compelling true crimes. And I weigh in using modern forensic techniques to bring new insights to old mysteries. Together, using our individual expertise, we're examining historical true crime cases through a 21st century lens. Some are solved, and some are cold. Very cold. This is Buried Bones. Hey, Paul. Hi, Kate. How are you? Doing just fine. I was chatting offline with our producer, Alexis, and she, <laughs> she like you and I, when she drives around, she muses about what happens with murders in the area where she is, because I feel like I see death everywhere, like in Austin, like somebody died here, somebody died there. And she had wondered what would happen if she found a dead body, and what would she do? You know, like, for instance, I have a friend who was a rower. Okay. And every time they would row on Lady Bird Lake in Austin, they found, I think, three or four times bodies in the water, and they never knew what to do. So if you could do a little primer on, for our audience <laughs> on what, I'm serious, like, what would you do? Would, you don't touch the body, I'm assuming. What if they're still alive? Shouldn't you do CPR? I mean, it it all depends on the context, the circumstances of what they have stumbled across. But let's just say there's a body that's laying on, you know, the side of the road. Mm -hmm. You stop and you see this body. I mean, there's bodies that are obviously dead. 
Mm-hmm. You don't need to go touch this body, stay away, and call law enforcement. Have them come out. They're going to want to take a statement from you in terms of what you've observed, when did you observe this, when did you get there, why you are there. But there are times where you may have a fresh body and you are unsure, is this person alive or not? And I think it's that is a personal choice. There's no mandate that you must now attempt any life-saving measures on this body. It's still sort of the same process. Get emergency responders out there as fast as possible. If you are somebody that can go up and check to see, is this body still alive and are willing to, you know, do some, you know, first aid, some, you know, life-saving measures, sure. But the reality is, is you want to get the first responders out there as, as quickly as possible if you suspect that that person is still alive. But in cases of obvious death, the last thing we want is that death scene to be contaminated by the, the witness. And so it's best to just stay away. How do first responders know how to not contaminate a scene? If you've got somebody there, so, you know, the man on the beach in Australia is a really good example. Remember, we did that case and he put his arm up and people weren't sure if he was passed out, drunk or dead or alive. Mm -hmm. How do they know, the EMS and the firefighters, how do they come up on a scene and know whether or not they are stepping through footprints that they shouldn't step through or removing clothing that then is contaminated. Is it a judgment call? I've always kind of wondered that. First responders always contaminate a crime scene, no matter how careful they are. If there is the thought that you have somebody that is hurt and they need medical attention, life-saving measures always come before preserving evidence. And so it is typical for me to go out to a crime scene in which fire paramedics has been in and they have completely disrupted the scene as they are doing their life-saving measures. So I have to take into account the actions that they do in order to be able to further assess, you know, what is related to the actual crime that occurred there. Yes, you know, they could be trampling on shoe impressions. They could be removing latent prints that the offender left behind, as an example. They're adding their own DNA to the crime scene. We just have to account for that. There's no way around it. But when it's a situation, you know, there there are times, let's say, a welfare check happens and a deputy or police officer goes inside the house, sees a person laying on the floor, and maybe paramedics and fire are already en route. And so when they come there, this officer will say, there's obvious signs of death. But now these uh, medical responders have to at least verify that. But they are told... Okay, just limit the number of people going in, do the least amount you need to do to ensure that that is actually a dead body, and then leave. And then that officer or deputy records, you know, in their supplement exactly what these paramedics and firefighters do. And and, and oftentimes in homicide cases, any of these medical personnel going into the crime scene for life-saving measures, they're asked to write reports about what they did, what they saw. So that's added to the case file. All of this speaks to the time period we're in now, which is you have, by and large, responsible, knowledgeable investigators responding to a crime scene, gathering the information, getting the forensic evidence together and presenting it to experts who can then evaluate it. Where I'm taking you now 
is not this time period. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the oldest case, but damn close. Pretty old. This is from the 1730s. Oh, wow. And it's a really interesting case because it comes down to a woman who is accused of murder who might not have done it, and she has a pretty good argument for why. So that is a lot of mystery that I'm putting out there. So let's just go ahead and set the scene. So where we're going is 1700s London. And I know you've been to London. I've been to London. It's one of my most favorite places I've lived there. And this is a time period where I'm interested in exploring how women are perceived. Because normally I don't like to ruin who the killer is or in this case, who might have been the killer, but I'm going to do it straight away because we need to evaluate whether she did it, what the chances are that she did it, and if her defense is a feasible defense to you. So let's just start with the main character here. Her name is Sarah Malcolm, and she was born in Ireland. Her father was English and her mother was Irish, and they go from Dublin to then London, where they eventually settle. She comes from a financially stable family. She has a good education. Her mother, and this happens frequently, everything is going well until a parent dies. And this is probably about when Sarah was in her late teens. Her mother died suddenly. And then her father decides he wants to go back to Dublin. And Sarah is alone in London. This would not have been uncommon. You know, she is of working age and marrying age. So he takes off, leaving her alone. But this is a big shift for her because she was well-educated, she was well-funded, and now she's a single woman and she didn't want to go back to Ireland. So she starts working a couple of different jobs. She's a server in a pub and she's also a laundress and a housemaid for an Irishman named Mr. Carroll. They live in residences above the nearby Inns of Court, which is this historical legal society and an educational institution. So this is a nice area. Sarah goes back and forth between living at Mr. Carroll's house and living at a home in Shoreditch where she stays often. We don't know a lot about it. And, you know, she has a room in Mr. Carroll's house. So she sort of goes back and forth. But again, this is not an unusual arrangement for somebody her age in this time period. She's a single woman. She's not married yet. She's not attached. And she's just trying to to make her way. She's socializing with other young people in London, including some folks who work with her at the Black Horse Inn pub. And these are some not-so-great people with unsavory reputations. There's a, a pair of brothers named James and Thomas Alexander. And there's a woman named Mary Tracy. You know, (laughs) what I find interesting about reputations in the 1700s is when they say unsavory, that could be somebody who pickpocketed when they were 10. You know, they're not very specific about what a dubious character would be in this time period. But we can safely say these were people who had thieved in the past. And these are not people I think her father would have approved of. Sarah is having a hard time because she's a single woman and she's struggling. She's struggling to make ends meet. She's working two jobs, working at a pub, doing laundry, and working for a man as kind of a personal assistant I think would have been difficult. So not to defend her in any way, but this group of misfits, James and Thomas and Mary and Sarah, decide 
that they want to rob valuables from the residences above the ends of the court, which is where, you know, she lives. This whole group thinks of this because Sarah has access to the building, because she has a room with Mr. Carroll, who is in these residences. So, you know, they're looking at an array of really well-appointed residences that they can break into because Sarah has a key. She's the insider. She's the insider. So already this is, you know, a bad scene for Sarah, unfortunately. And she's someone who it seems like is in a pretty vulnerable position. But what she makes clear is, I'm agreeing to do this. I could use the money. I am only the lookout. I am not doing anything else. But we know (laughs) that being the lookout is not such a great idea. And this is a common stance that suspects will take is they they realize that they are associated with the crime. There's no way out of it. But what they do is they make statements to minimize their involvement. So I was only the lookout. I'm I'm listening to this, you know, and and I'm hearing Sarah say this. You know, my immediate thought is, okay, were you really only the lookout? Or are you just trying to minimize what your true role was? Absolutely. So this group says, Sarah, who are we able to rob first? And she says, I have a former client who lives above the ends of the court. Her name is Lydia Duncombe. And Duncombe is a very wealthy 80-year-old widow. She is described as infirm, which, you know, you would think it means probably disabled, physically disabled. And we don't know if it's a physical or a mental decline or both, but whatever it is, she needs a caretaker. So she has a teenage caregiver named Ann Price who lives with her. And we also have a 60-year-old woman named Elizabeth Harrison who lives in the Duncombe home. So we've got three women, an 80-year-old who seems like somebody who is not going to be able to defend herself. You have a 60-year-old woman, and then you have this teenage caregiver all living in this house, that sounds like it's stocked full of a lot of valuable things, including money. So this is, you're talking about vulnerable victims here. You have this residence, you have the vulnerable victims. Does Sarah have the key to this residence? I don't think there is a key. I think there is a master key to the door, to the front door, but I'm not sure a lock, if they even used the lock, would have been that common. So I think getting access to the building was the important part. I'm not sure that this is a situation where you're going to throw your shoulder against the door and it's going to open up. I think it could already be open. But let's proceed and I'll tell you a little bit more. Sarah and the brothers, remember there's two young men, and Mary Tracy organized this plan. They're going to hit the Duncombe residence Sarah's been in the house before. She knows where the valuables are. We talk about that. You know, do you know the layout? Of course, it makes it much easier. There are valuables in the trunk. And while she is working in the building, which is February 3rd of 1733, Sarah stops by to see Mrs. Duncombe. And of course, it looks like she's trying to case it. That's what we later find out is it seems like she's trying to case it to see who's there. She says that she's there to visit Mrs. Harrison. So Mrs. Harrison is the 60-year-old Elizabeth Harrison, who is sick at the time. And so she is there to kind of check in on her. Sarah goes and, you know, wants to see how Harrison is doing. So now we're talking about an 80-year-old who is defenseless, and you're talking about a 60-year-old who 
is ill at this point and then a teenager. So even more vulnerable victims against two young brothers and two women. This is an important distinction. You have the resident's home and now you have this this group of thieves that are planning on going into this residence to take valuables. Now, if there's nobody at home, the type of crime that they're committing is a burglary, where you're going into an uninhabited dwelling with the intent to commit a felony. But when you go into this dwelling, and now you are taking the valuables by force and fear from the victims themselves, this is a robbery. And, and, and in this day and age, we would be calling this a home invasion robbery. Mm-hmm. This is a very serious crime. While Sarah's there, she confirms that the valuables are in the trunk. She says goodbye to Harrison, the 60-year-old woman, and Mrs. Duncombe, and the teenage girl. So now she knows how many people are in this room. We are not at all denying that Sarah did something wrong in this situation. The question is, is she going to do something that is deadly? And that's what the big question is. So the next night, Sarah sneaks in Mary and the Alexander brothers into the home, and she tells them where the trunk is located, and they all hide, this group, until Lydia and Anne and Elizabeth are asleep. So Sarah is the lookout, and she stations herself outside of the home of the flat on a set of stairs in the building's hallway. By Sarah's telling, it is just Mary and the two brothers who were inside the home when all this happens. So as far as she knows, the thieves have gotten away with 300 pounds in gold and silver coins, which is a lot in 1733, and a menagerie of other items like smocks and a canvas bag and a a silver tankard. Is that right? Is that how you say that? I wouldn't know. I've never heard that term. Uh, You didn't know what a tankard was? No. Here, I'm going to show you a photo. This is unexpected. Hold on a second. This is a tankard. This seems like your kind of drink. Glass, do you see it on the right-hand side? Oh. I'm going to buy you one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like those metal uh, beer steins with the lids on them. Yep. Oh, yeah. Well, I've seen those in the movies, but I've never drank out of one of those. I'm sending you one. <laughs> <laughs> so they take the gold coins, silver coins, a menagerie of other items like smocks and a canvas bag, a silver tankard, which we talked about. It's a beer stein, right, with a lid and a handle. But this did not go well for anybody. What happens in the apartment is a mystery because no one really is going to talk after this except for Sarah. The next day, someone comes to check in on Mrs. Duncombe, and they find a terribly bloody scene. The young housemaid, Anne Price, the teenager, had her throat savagely slit, and both of the women, the 60-year-old and the 80-year-old, were strangled to death with a cord. Hmm. And the trunk has been busted open, so we know what the motive was. Okay, and does it appear that the victims inside this house, were they asleep when they were attacked? Or does it look like one or more of them got up to confront the offenders coming into the residence? It doesn't say. Would you think that the two women, if you're strangled, are probably laying down, but if the teenager's throat is slashed, is she standing up? Or why would you do both? Is it several different people picking different methods? Oh, there, there, well, there's so many variables. I mean, you can, uh, you know, see, and I've seen, you know, women's whose throats have been cut while they're obviously been down. 
I'm trying to assess how this crime went down. You know, here you're describing the planning process where the the three offenders that are going into the residence are going to go in during a time when they expect the victims to be asleep. Yeah. So in essence, they're going to try to do this cat burglary. They're going to try to sneak in, steal the valuables and get out. Now, obviously, things went very sideways. And my question is, is that is that because of something the victims did, such as maybe the teenager got up and confronted them? Was her throat you know, cut with a knife that they brought mm-hmm. uh, or did they utilize a weapon from inside the house? If they brought the knife, that speaks to, OK, well, they were prepared in case they met resistance. The two older ladies are being strangled. Is that because they were still in their bed and they just went ahead after they were confronted by the teenager? They're eliminating the two other victims. Or was this the intent from the very beginning? I know in this case, the question is not with Sarah. You know, she obviously is helping commit this crime, but is Mm -hmm. she involved in more than just being a lookout? Now, trying to assess the dynamics of the crime scene, what was the motives? I I would, if I could see crime scene photos, I could determine the motives of the offenders, what they thought they were going to be doing going in. They may have planned to do a home invasion robbery homicide, where now they're going to go in, they're going to wipe out all the victims, they're going to steal the valuables. Or does the crime scene itself make it look like, oh, they ran into something unexpected, and now they had to resort to this violence in order for self-preservation, in order to get away with committing this crime. One of the things that's complicated about this case is that once all of this becomes unraveled, you've got two brothers and Mary Tracy who eventually are spoken to and deny being there. So the reason I'm telling you that information in advance is my question, Hmm. is it likely if you've got two scenarios, two men and two young women, and let's say Sarah Malcolm was involved in the murders doing this, right? Strangling two older women. Although I got to tell you, you and I, you're especially closer to to 60 than I am. You know, I know that that Harrison was sick, but that doesn't mean she couldn't have fought back. I'm trying to assess your choices here are Sarah Malcolm was a lookout and you've got two men and a woman who did this or two men and a woman have nothing to do with this. And Sarah Malcolm did it all on her own. Those are your only two choices right now. The 2020s are getting stressful. What if we go back in time to the 1920s? All those flapper dresses, champagne towers, and good old-fashioned whodunits. Now is your chance with June's Journey, the mobile mystery game that puts your detective skills to the test. This game has everything. You'll play as June Parker investigating the murder of her sister. You'll travel the world searching for clues and explore lavish estates and beautifully designed scenes from the Roaring Twenties. Each is filled with hidden objects that may lead you to the killer. There are twists, turns, and even catchy tunes. And if you play well enough, you might make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. 
I have a hard time believing Sarah going through this residence and eliminating the three victims. It's not outside the realm of possibility. However, that seems less likely to me. So, and the teenage girl that's inside this house, you know, is she larger in stature? Is she stronger? You know, the victimology comes into play in terms of assessing, you know, what is the offender's physical capability to be able to handle the teenage girl in addition to being able to then redirect, at least on the 60-year-old who, even though sick, potentially has physical capability to get up and confront versus the 80-year-old who, you know, being infirm may not be even able to get up out of the bed. Also, let's think about this time period. Where they are, they're doing this in a residence that have multiple flats inside of it. So I think this has to be done quickly so there's no yelling and screaming. Yes. I don't know if a young woman would be able to do all of this to stop one of these people from screaming and alerting neighbors in a building that might not have been well insulated. We're in London. This is not a rural farmhouse where your neighbor is three miles away. So I think a lot of this had to happen very, very quickly. And that comes into play later on. They don't find the murder weapon. They don't find the knife. They don't find the cord. You know, we don't know if it was a cord that they found there that was a weapon of convenience or it was something they brought with them. But they also they don't find the knife. There's very little there except a lot of blood. And that part is really important. When you slit someone's throat, that must produce a tremendous amount of blood, no matter how big the person is, right? Cutting the throat while the person's still alive, the heart's beating. If you've got both the jugular and the carotid particularly the carotid arteries being cut, that heart will continue to beat for a period of time. And so you're starting to get a very large blood pool that forms. But when they walk into a scene and they say there's a ton of blood in here, well, it's important as to, okay, what blood patterns are present? Mm -hmm. Do the blood patterns indicate that there was an ongoing struggle? You know, you've got the two victims who were strangled, and it doesn't sound like they're a source. They don't have any bleeding injuries. They're not a source of the blood inside this residence. Mm -hmm. Whereas Anne is, her throat is cut. Now, does she have defensive injuries? Was she stabbed? Uh, does it appear that there's blood patterns indicating that there was combat between Anne and the offender? Or is it just a very large blood pool? This is where sometimes you get lay people who walk into a homicide scene and they don't know what they're looking at. And they come out and say, there's blood everywhere. And what they're talking mm -hmm. about is there's just a large blood pool. And maybe it's just a blood pool in the middle of the bed. Anne was asleep and somebody came up and cut her throat while she laid there. And within seconds, she's gone. So that's where it's important to know those types of things. But I know from 1730s, I'm not going to get that, am I? No, you're not. And I think the important thing coming up is where the blood ended up. And I don't know if this is going to fall under bloodstain pattern analysis, but I think it is. So this is an interesting case. This is why. So word spreads throughout this residence. Remember, this is a building filled with flats. It's like an apartment building. So no one heard anything. There were no screams. That's what I mean. The efficiency of this crime seems really strong. And that's why I'm very doubtful about what happens later on in this case. So word spreads through the building that there have been three murders. And Sarah lives part-time with Mr. Carroll one floor down from where this happens. So Mr. Carroll, for his part, once he's heard about this, starts side-eyeing Sarah. She's acting very strangely. And he becomes suspicious. 
he sees her holding a bundle. And I don't know why that was suspicious, but it, he thought it looked odd. He said, what is that that you're holding? And she said, it's my clothing. And this is where the sensibilities of the 18th century are interesting. She said, when he said, well, let me take a look at it, she says, I hope that decency will prevent you from looking at my clothing. Because that would have been inappropriate for a man to go thumbing through her clothing, even though she wasn't wearing it at the time. And so he obliges. He totally backs down and says, okay, but she's gripping onto a bundle. Okay. And and we don't know anything more about this bundle. It's just like rolled up clothes. As far as Mr. Carroll knows for now, but later he starts becoming more and more suspicious and uncomfortable that he's potentially living with a killer. So he searches her room and he finds the clothing and there's blood on it. But the blood is on some very specific parts. It's on something called a shift. Have you ever heard of that? It's 18th century speak. No, I, actually, I have a case, 1966 case, in which the criminalists that responded utilized the term shift. The victim was wearing okay. a shift. And I was like, what is a shift? So I do have an understanding as to what a shift is. Tell us all what a shift is based on your understanding. Oh, boy. I am horrible at describing women's clothing. This, <laughs> I would describe what this victim was wearing was a, I don't know if a sundress is the right term, but in essence, yeah. it was, you know, it was kind of like had two straps open topped, uh, but, mm -hmm. but a single piece that went down into a skirt. Mm -hmm. And that was what was described as a shift. Yeah, it's a little bit like a slip and it's an undergarment. It would have been a private undergarment that Mr. Carroll should not have been looking at, frankly. There's blood on it, on the shift, and there's an apron that she wore often that also had some blood on it. Okay. And there is also something odd that he finds. That mysterious tankard that I told you I'm going to send you in the mail so you can drink your whiskey <laughs> out of. It would be way too much whiskey for you to drink. He finds the tankard in his bathroom, and it's bloody. It looks like somebody tried to hide it there. This is probably the tankard from the floor above where the murder happened, but he doesn't know that yet. He then calls investigators. And with this evidence, they look at the blood on the shift that she's wearing. They look at the apron and blood on that. They look at the tankard, and she says, the tankard is from my dad. And then she says, I know those are bloody clothes. And they say, this is evidence of murder. And she said, it's menstrual blood. And this sends them into a tizzy because, boy, women are not supposed to talk about that in the 1700s. But it is her defense. This is menstrual blood, and there's nothing you can say that's going to prove otherwise. And forensically, she's right. Okay, how much blood is there? You know, where is it located on, on these items of clothing? You know, what types of blood patterns are present with this tankard? You know, I'm, again, going back to the crime scene. We have one bleeder at the crime scene. And as of right now, the only bleeding injury that you've described is a cut throat. Right. Why is blood showing up on the clothing that Sarah has, as well as this tankard? What kind of blood stain patterns are they? Uh, you know, this is where getting back into what was going on. There's probably more going on between Anne and the offender 
than just Anne laying in her bed and having her throat cut. If now we've got blood all over the place, there is, you know, a phenomenon when, when the throat is cut and the heart is still beating that you can get what's called an arterial spurt. Mm-hmm. And it, you can get almost like, like this projected blood that comes out of this breached artery. And that could possibly, you know, get onto somebody that's cutting the throat. But if the throat is just cut, how come there's all this blood staining happening on these items that, that Sarah has possession of? Tells me that there's likely more violence going on between the offender and Anne, if in fact this blood is Anne's from the crime. Mm-hmm. I mean, Sarah has a valid uh, argument. This is where, you know, is there a possibility? It's innocent blood. It's menstrual blood. Mm-hmm. This tankard, is it, you know, can it be proven that it was stolen from the crime scene? Or is Sarah right? And it's like, no, you know, this is from my dad. I, you know, I was dealing with my period and I inadvertently touched this tankard and now I've, I've passed menstrual blood onto the tankard. So you have to be able to start sorting that out. Well, and actually what she says is it appears she did have a cut, which would not have been unusual for somebody who was dealing with food and clothing and everything else that she was dealing with in a household. And she said that the tankard was a family thing that was, you know, owned by her family Mm -hmm. and that it smeared with blood because she had cut her hand and she grabbed it, you know, and that's how it ended up with blood. I think she could have easily said, I wiped myself at some point and I had menstrual blood and that's how it ended up on there. But that was her explanation is I had cut my hand, I grabbed the tankard, but I have nothing to do with this. That being said, she tells investigators, I was in on the robbery. I was a lookout. Paul, that was basically an automatic death sentence. So her admitting that she was participating in this robbery Mm -hmm. would have resulted in her death. She is saying, yes, I robbed. Yes, if you're going to execute me, that is the right crime. But I did not kill these three people, which I thought was extraordinary. Sure. And, and even in this day and age, you know, these people that aren't directly involved in inflicting the violence that leads to homicide, they didn't do the shooting. They didn't do the stabbing. They are the driver of the vehicle. They're, you know, the lookout, like in Sarah's case, you know, they are culpable for crime. And, you know, up until recently, due to uh, what was called in California, the felony murder rule, they could be charged with murder, even though they weren't the active participant in actually committing the homicide. Now, that has since changed in California, is my understanding, but I'm sure there's similar statutes across the nation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Sarah being the lookout, and there's a triple homicide that's occurred, she could be charged with murder in some jurisdictions today. Well, she names all three co-conspirators. Everybody's arrested, but only Sarah is indicted. And I think it's because of that tankard. Nobody could definitively say that it belonged to Mrs. Duncombe. There's no stolen goods found with the other three people, with the two men and the woman. So they are there and under arrest simply because Sarah said, this is what our plan was. And I was the lookout and this was it. She was adamant she had nothing to do with the murders. And there is no evidence aside from her word connecting these three people 
to this murder, no physical evidence that we know of. But she says to, she screams at the brothers and at Mary Tracy and says, see what, this is 18th century speak here, see what you have brought to me. It is through you that I am brought to this shame. You all said you would do no murder, but to my great surprise, I found the contrary. So she was really upset and she knew she will be executed for the robbery. But she just felt like this was a time period where what was most important was your reputation and your name. And this was when there were honor killings and duels. And she was very clear that she did not participate in this. They tried her anyway. And the other three just completely denied any role in this crime. Yep. They said there's no evidence against us. So Sarah goes on trial. And they hold the other three to see what happens with the trial. She goes on trial February 23rd in 1733 at Old Bailey. We've talked about Old Bailey a lot. It's the the classic old courthouse where I feel like everybody in London for hundreds and hundreds of years has been tried. She is on the stand. She has a defense attorney, but she gets on the stand and she comes across as very whip smart. She cross-examines her own witnesses and she is not framed, nor does she want to be framed as this demure, sweet little lamb, which of course made everybody uncomfortable. She was aggressive when she questioned people. She said, yes, I did the robbery. I had nothing to do with the murders. She was only the lookout. And the next thing she knew, these three people were dead. Now, the menstrual fluid, which I find the most important part of this case, She said, let's break this down to whether or not the blood from cutting Anne's throat would have ended up on the killer the way the blood ended up on me. And she said, it was on my apron and it was on my undergarments, the shift, Mm -hmm. but it was nowhere else. And she said, if it is supposed that I killed Anne with my clothes on, then yes, my apron would be bloody, but how would the blood come upon my shift and not the rest of my clothes? So the undergarment, but not the clothes over it. And if I only did it in my shift, how would my apron be bloody? And the back part of my shift was also bloody. So she's saying in every scenario, the blood is in not the right place. It is localized. And then she said, whether I did it dressed or undressed, undressed would mean with the shift only, why was not the neck and the sleeve of my shift bloody as well as the lower parts? So she's saying, really, I'm going to cut someone's throat and it's just going to end up where my vagina is, essentially, <laughs> which is a good point. Yeah, it is. It's, it's something that has to be taken into consideration. But also, I just keep going back to what were the activities between the offender and the victim and at the crime scene? Right. Does the offender walk away from that crime scene with some blood on their hand and then now touching garments? that they are wearing. You know, in the 1730s, they don't have the ability to determine whose blood is on Sarah's clothing. Right. Nor do they have the ability to determine, is this blood menstrual or not? You know, versus today, we do have some capacity to be able to determine menstrual blood versus circulatory blood. She's making, I think, some good arguments Provided that the crime scene aspects are in line with her arguments. Mm -hmm. And that's where you need to have an expert come in and assess 
everything to determine what she's saying is consistent with what happened during the commission of the crime. And right now we just don't we don't have that. And they didn't have it back then. And, you know, this comes up in the Lizzie Borden trial. Also, you know, the idea of there's menstrual blood and it's an easy way to say you can't tell the difference at this point. This is and it was so taboo to even talk about this. And Lizzie Borden happened in the late 1800s. So we're talking about 150 years before Lizzie Borden. So when we talk about going backwards in this case and you're saying I'm just picturing Sarah Malcolm with a knife slitting Anne's throat, grabbing some of the blood, the blood coming on her hand, she's dripping. She touches her shift underneath some of her clothing. Wouldn't anybody be able to tell the difference between the dripping of menstrual blood versus a handprint. It just seems like kind of a no-brainer you would be able to tell the difference. Well, what you're talking about is, let's say, contact transfers. So let's say yeah. Yeah, the offender, let's say it's Sarah. Sarah puts her hand inadvertently in some of Anne's uh, blood at the crime scene. Now, when she touches items, whether it be the tankard or various parts of her clothing, she's transferring the blood on her hand to those items. This is just a simple contact transfer. Let's say she's on the other side, she's menstruating, she ends up getting some of the menstrual blood on her hand, and now she touches these very same items. Mm-hmm. You're not going to differentiate that. Okay. Now, there are patterns, you know, if you have spatter, you have cast off, I would not expect a woman to produce spatter when she's doing cleanup as a result of, you know, dealing with her men- menstrual cycle. Right. Uh, that would tend to cause me to lean more towards, well, this was produced during a violent act. But right now we don't have that information, you know. Right. And, and, and so it's it's for me, I can't corroborate or refute Sarah's defense with the information provided. I think her point is, why would this undergarment be bloodied in the spots where it's bloodied and not other items of my clothing? It didn't make any sense to her, and it didn't make a lot of sense to other people privately. And that may be a very valid argument, but I can't because there's always variables, right? And so I can't say, oh, yes, I completely am in line with what she's saying. What she's saying makes sense. It's a good argument, but there are possible scenarios in which that blood could result in being in those locations because of the activity at the crime scene and then the post-offender behavior. So I can't differentiate. All of this, I think, should have helped her case, her explanation, her defense's explanation. It didn't. The fact that she was talking about this openly was offensive to the jury and indicative of her poor behavior. And this is a sign of the times, of course. The trial lasted five hours, which was a fast trial. We know that is very fast. <laughs> the further back we go, the faster it is. The jury deliberated for 15 minutes. She was guilty of murder. She was sentenced to death, and the other three people were freed. There's no evidence. There's no way in my head that I think she did this. I think she was the lookout, and she got the tankard and got screwed at the end. That's what I think. I think the, the number of victims inside this residence— how they are killed, cutthroat and strangulation. Just from history, women generally don't necessarily commit to this type of crime. A triple homicide? 
you know, robbing is one thing, but to do a triple homicide in the same building where you live, where probably you would be investigated, it doesn't make any sense. And evaluating this group of suspects, we start off this case hearing about how the brothers and Mary Tracy are these unsavory characters. Mm-hmm. And up to this point, you know, once Sarah separates from, you know, her dad goes back, there's nothing to indicate that Sarah has any criminal past to her, right? Mm -hmm. It's now she, she gets into this group and at least per Sarah's statements, you know, they plot to take advantage of Sarah's access into these various flats inside this residence. Mm Mm-hmm. The fact that she's associating with others at this time that appear to have a criminal history that is more conducive to them possibly stepping into this residence and and very possibly committing this level of violence suggests to me that, yes, I think Sarah very likely is being accurate with her saying, I was the lookout. She doesn't have the past to indicate that she is going to be the one that will go into this residence and kill three people. I think the other three are involved. I agree. And one thing we haven't even talked about is we're talking about a situation where this is an Irish Catholic woman who is being tried by a Protestant England judicial system. There is a bias there. It is all over the newspapers. They say that she is unrepentant because she said, I didn't do anything. You know, I was a lookout and I made a mistake and you can execute me for that, but don't execute me for murdering someone. So she writes a letter before her execution to the chaplain where she maintains her innocence and she said, Sir, if conscience has touched you in the least, it must certainly leave sadness on your spirits. And as it behooves everyone at their last hour to die in peace with God and the world, I freely forgive you and all the world. So she is steadfast. I did not do this. And as an Irish Catholic woman, you would think that she would have repented. I would have guessed. But boy, I don't know. I know you don't put, (laughs) as an investigator, you wouldn't put a lot of credence into that. But actions in this time period, for her to not confess, being a very religious person, it would be surprising to me. The flip side is I'm also surprised that she would have gone and been okay with robbing an old woman, potentially hurting them. So Sarah Malcolm is a mixed bag. This story has been told over and over again, even though she was, you know, never wavering in her innocence. She's been sort of associated in time with humans' capacity for sadism and evil and barbarianism and, I mean, just terrible. There is a very well-known sketch that was sketched days before her execution by William Holgrath. You know, this is a woman who seemed doomed by her own actions and life circumstances, and certainly in the time period that she lived in. My goodness, we don't know what really happened, but boy, I'm not convinced she did all of that. I think that you have three people who got away with murder. Oh, so this is a sketch. This is actually Sarah in her cell. Yep, and you see her cross there and the rosary and everything. My conclusion on this is there's not enough evidence to be able to even charge Sarah with the murders. Yeah. But to be clear, by Sarah's own admission, 
she participated in a crime that resulted in a triple homicide. Yep. Uh, so she she does have culpability in the crime, and whether or not you know her role rose to the level of the death sentence uh that's i think that's debatable mm-hmm. but she most certainly uh, bears responsibility some responsibility for the death of three people what a sad case we don't know what happened we just know that because of this time period and the circumstances that Sarah Malcolm did not get a fair trial right. and whether she was innocent or guilty it just is another reminder for me that you have a inherent biases in society based on religion, based on the sex of the person, you know, all of this. This was a woman who really was convicted mostly because she was trying to defend herself in the best way she could, and it was considered an impropriety that she did. It's another frustrating case for me because some of these questions that still linger today could be answered if this case had occurred today. But if that were the case, Paul Holes, we would have no cases. They would have all been solved and boring. And I know you like the sticky, weird, unsolved, we don't really know what happened, so let's just debate it for an hour cases. And I love them too. So unfortunately for the folks in the 1700s, you know, we have a a dearth of cases to work with here. Yep. Well, but again, fascinating. So thanks for bringing that case to my attention. Thank you. See you next week. Sounds good. This has been an Exactly Right production. For our sources and show notes, go to exactlyrightmedia.com slash sources. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Research by Marin McClashen and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Our mixing engineer is Liana Squillacci. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Our artwork is by Vanessa Lilac. Executive produced by Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hardstark, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow Buried Bones on Instagram and Facebook at Buried Bones Pod. Kate's most recent book, All That Is Wicked, A Gilded Age Story of Murder and the Race to Decode the Criminal Mind, is available now. And Paul's best-selling memoir, Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases, is also available now. Follow Barry Bones and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase Barry Bones merch.